like to read for you from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Last week we began this all-in series and we're asking the, the question is, what does it mean to be all-in for Jesus? And today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Paul is writing. He's writing to Christians in the city of Corinth. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have scattered abroad their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of service by which you have proved yourselves, people will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for, your, for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for allowing us to live where we do and to enjoy the freedoms that we have as a nation. And we want to recognize as Christians that we are grateful for these freedoms. We're grateful that the, the very first freedom in the amendments tells us that we have the freedom to live out our faith. And we're grateful for all of that. We have not just freedom to worship at a specific hour on Sundays, but we have freedom of religion and to live that out and to to practice that day in and day out. Thank you for this wonderful country that has uh, given us uh, the, the recognition that that freedom is there for all of us and that it's a God-given right. Thank you, Lord, also for the opportunity that we have uh, to breathe the air that you give us every day, to feel the sunshine on our shoulders, to eat the food that is grown here in this marvelous place. Lord, we pray for our nation. We realize that we live in troubling times and our, our nation is not perfect and our government is not perfect. But it may just be about the best that there is. And so we honor it. We pray for our president and our vice president and all of our senators and all of our congressmen and women. We pray for those who are in local government and for the elections that are coming up. And Lord, we ask that you would do good through our nation good for us and good for the world and good for those who are in trouble and those who are hurting and those who are homeless. And as we learn more and more about how Jesus calls us to live, let us be agents of good that make this place even better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor tells the story of an airplane flight that he recently took from Chicago to California. During the flight, the plane began to encounter some interference. Soon the whole plane was shaking and the passengers were getting alarmed. Even the flight attendants were looking concerned. 
Finally, a passenger who was sitting in front of this pastor and knew that he was a pastor leaned over the seat and said, this is really frightening. Do you suppose you could, you know, do something religious? <laughs> at this point, the pastor who was telling the story paused. He looked at his audience and he said, so I took up an offering. <laughs> now, that story connects with us for a number of reasons. Part of it is because people get alarmed whenever a pastor talks about money or giving in church. It's often the last thing that a new person in church wants to hear about. Even longtime attenders squirm depending on how this topic is handled. And church leaders always want the pastor to talk about these things more often because they know what it takes to keep everything running. Perhaps it helps to realize that Jesus talked about the subject of giving more than anyone else in the Bible. Sixteen of his 38 parables dealt with money or giving in one way, shape, or form. Last Sunday, we began a new series called All In, which is built around one foundational question that we're asking each week. What does it mean for us to be all in for Jesus? This All In series focuses on our stewardship of life, and so last week we talked about the stewardship of life's opportunities and today in part two we're going to focus on this concept of sowing and reaping which has to do with financial stewardship. There's an old saying that a friend of mine often quotes, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. During my preparation for this morning's message, I realized that I have misunderstood something really, really important about Christian life. And it became so much clearer to me this week as I read and studied to put this message together. So I'd like to share with you what I learned because I think it can turn around some misperceptions that many, many Christians and many people who consider themselves not to be Christians have about the concept of financial stewardship. Right up front, here's my discovery. Here's what I got wrong. For most of my adult life, I have been working at rescuing notions of giving and tithing from the guilt and sense of obligation that often permeates church talks about this specific topic. It is very easy to walk away with the idea that God is more pleased with me or more pleased with you when we embrace giving as a lifelong obligation. It's not that we teach it that way. But it's very easy for that notion to slip in, that God loves me more, that God is more pleased with my performance. That's the issue that keeps sinking in and slipping in, that God loves us based on performance. That I'm truly where God wants me to be if I embrace the discipline of tithing, percentage giving, or sacrificial giving, even of martyr-driven giving that some of us do, because our God is a God of sacrifice, isn't he? So he wants me, he wants you to sacrifice. And so we connect the idea of giving to sacrifice and we go on being martyrs for the cause. Now there's an element of truth in that. Jesus did sacrifice his position in glory. He sacrificed his life on earth for those of us who put his faith, our faith in him. This is at the core of the gospel, so we don't question that. But here's the problem. God had something different in mind all along than simply giving out of sacrifice or martyrdom. And if you and I get stuck on the my approach to giving is rooted in sacrifice notion, then we are going to miss something even better that should be the root of our approach to financial stewardship thinking. So here's the discovery. 
Giving should always be rooted in God's call to fruitfulness. We're going to talk about fruitfulness this morning more than anything else. Welcome to North River. Sunday's here in the summer at 10 a.m. I am glad to see us all together in this way. May God's richest blessings fall on you who are part of this uh, service today. Those of you who are here in Pembroke with us in the building and all of you who are watching online as well. If you're with us online, please do your best to let us know how you're doing. We'd like to extend a personal touch that happens when you're with us in person as well. So there are simple ways that if you're online that you can connect with us. The same stuff that Amy talked about a moment ago. Text the word hello to 781-227-8765. That ends up coming to me and we'll start a conversation. Or you can go to our website, uh, northriverchurch.org. Look for the I'm new button and underneath that a connection card will come out and you can fill that out. That also ends up on my desk. Or you can go out here to our welcome center and ask for a connection card and fill out a piece of paper. I'd love it, though, if you can't do any of those, just send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org. I'd love to begin the conversation with you. So the question that we're asking in this series is, what does it mean to be all in for Jesus? And if I take that a step further, what would it mean to be all in for Jesus for the Corinthian church when they hear this challenge from the Apostle Paul? Would the Corinthian Christians still be all in when Paul brings up giving and asks them to make a donation to the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering. What Paul realized is that some people are no longer all in as soon as we talk about giving. I'm all in, Lord. I'm all in, Paul. But don't bring this one up. So that's what we're talking about today. Isn't that great? (laughs) We're going to talk about sowing and reaping. Now, the passage we just read from 2 Corinthians centers on a collection that Paul and the apostles were taking up to benefit Christians in Jerusalem who are undergoing a time of persecution. And again, the question is, how would they process this challenge? Would they still be all in? So I'd like to present something that the earliest Christians knew when Paul started talking about the concept of stewardship. Here's the first thing that they knew. God desires each of us to be fruitful. This actually comes from the very first chapter of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. The Bible starts out in the very first chapter with a very early mandate to bear fruit. This begins with the fruitfulness that comes from expanding the human race. He's telling them to have children and to fill the earth with them. I think we've done a good job of that as a race overall. But it also includes the oversight and enjoyment of every kind of plant and fruit that bears seed and provides nourishment for human beings. We are invited to take part in all of them. Notice the repetition here in these two verses of this fruitfulness theme. God provides plant life that bears fruit, wants us to grow and consume this as good food, and then he invites human beings who reflect the image of God to bear fruit in our lives too. That's the first foundational point. Here's the second one. The key to bearing fruit is staying connected to the vine or connected to Jesus because Jesus tells us that he is the true vine. So we have one Old Testament principle. Now we go to the New Testament for a second fruitfulness principle. One verse, John 15, 5, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. 
If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice that Jesus picks up the fruitfulness theme that his father began in Genesis. Jesus was talking to the original disciples here, but this applies to all disciples who follow after them, and that includes you and me if we have our faith in Jesus. He tells us that the key to bearing fruit is staying connected to the vine. He's using the image of a vineyard here and the way that vines grow and produce grapes and ultimately wine. This should be vines and vineyards for dummies lesson number one. Branches only grow when they are still supported by, connected to, and flowing from the vine. Branches that are cut off from the vine very quickly die. There's no more nourishment that comes their way, and they starve, and they die, and they turn brown. A few verses later, Jesus adds that bearing fruit brings glory to God the Father, and that bearing fruit identifies us as Jesus' disciples. Together, we have two mandates regarding fruitfulness, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The first one tells us that we reflect the nature of God when we bear fruit. This is seen through human expansion. This is also seen through human productivity. Then Jesus adds that the purpose of every disciple is to bear kingdom fruit, meaning the kingdom of God fruit, the kingdom of Christ fruit. This fruit includes becoming more like Jesus in heart and character and actions. This fruit also includes influencing others to embrace, trust, and follow Jesus. This fruit is essentially carrying on the work of God that Jesus started and has commissioned his followers to continue. So, putting all that together, the purpose of every Christian is to bear fruit in continuing the work of Jesus here in the world. Knowing this changes the way that we think about our role as stewards. It becomes very simple. What God has, wants us to do from the very beginning instructions in Genesis is to live fruitful lives where we are productive and we bear fruit, bear fruit that honors God and brings praise to his name. And Jesus reinforced that. And being connected to Jesus is the key to having the nourishment that is necessary for us to be fruitful. So then we come to this passage in 2 Corinthians that we read a moment ago where Paul is challenging the church in Corinth. Here's what he's telling us. The degree of fruitfulness depends on how we reap and sow. Or sow and reap, depending on how you want to put that. This is what he says in verses 6 through 8, 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, these two chapters, Paul was raising funds that would benefit local churches. The purpose was furthering the mission and helping those who were suffering, and he expected that churches who had received help earlier would help struggling churches now. So one of the questions is, okay, how had the church in Corinth, the believers in Corinth, how had they received help earlier? Well, the church in Corinth had been launched by disciples from Jerusalem and Antioch, the very two church, first churches in existence. Paul 
and a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, had been on, on hand there in the early work in the development of the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul spent a year and a half there building up this church, so they knew him. He wasn't writing to a group of people who were distant and unknown. And now Paul was asking them to give help to the Christians in Jerusalem who in effect had already helped them because hard times had fallen. Notice that Paul picks up the fruitfulness theme just like God in Genesis and just like Jesus in John chapter 15. It is seen in the harvest language of reaping and sowing that he talks about. Farmers and gardeners easily and naturally understand this kind of language. There are three keys at work in this passage. The first is the principle of reaping and sowing. First, he states it negatively. Whoever sows sparingly, in other words, they throw out very little seed, will reap sparingly. Okay, that makes sense. And then he says it positively. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. So he's saying, in general, any farmer who throws out more seed is going to have a bigger harvest. But he's likening this to the way that we invest in kingdom work. The second principle has to do with the cheerfulness factor. He says that each person should give what they have decided before the Lord. This implies that there will be a conscious, prayerful decision. And then he says this decision should meet three conditions. That we're not giving reluctantly, that we're not giving under compulsion, and whatever is given should be given cheerfully. So, not giving under compulsion speaks to the folks like me who are giving messages like this. He's saying we are never, ever, ever to give people the idea that there should be coercion, that there should be manipulation when we talk about giving, that all of that is antithetical to what God really wants. You still have to teach about it. You still have to instruct people. We still have to teach the Word of God. But we do it in a way that's fair. We do it in a way that's not manipulative. Because one of God's goals is with every single one of us that we would give cheerfully. And here's the reason then that he states after that. God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, God doesn't want us begrudgingly to say, here you go, Lord, here's the offering that you asked for. He wants us to be able to be in a place of a mindset where we say, I get this. You have blessed me so greatly that my life has become fruitful, and out of the fruitfulness of my life, here's an expression of the way that I'm returning this to you and investing in what you're doing here in the world. And then the third key is the enrichment factor. And we learn something about God here. The same God who calls us to sow generously, we're told, is able to aid the giver. So he's not saying he wants us to just give sacrificially and burn ourselves out so that it's all gone. But he tells us that God is able to bless us abundantly. That he's able to supply all of our needs. That he's able to increase or stretch your source of supplies. That he's able to enlarge your harvest of righteousness. We have to come back to that one. But notice the fruitfulness theme, the harvest theme that's in there. And he's able to enrich us so that we can be even more generous. All of this serves his purpose that we will abound in every good work and that this will result in thanksgiving and praise toward God. In other words, God wants us to be fruitful so that other people can see what we are doing in the world and how it makes a difference in the world and realize that we're serving him which in effect brings praise back to his name. That's what God is after. So let's put all this together. 
One, God desires us to be fruitful in life. This comes from Genesis 1, 28 and 29. Two, Jesus calls us to bear fruit by staying connected to the true vine. John 15, 5. These two factors show us that Christians are people who are called to carry on the work of Jesus as we glorify God by bearing spiritual fruit. And now Paul reveals how God blesses and honors those who reap and sow generously in his work. People who have embraced the goal of bearing fruit in service to Jesus therefore are looking for ways to contribute to efforts that further the work of Christ and his kingdom because we bought into this idea that we want to be fruitful in our lives. Last week, the big idea in part one of this series was this. Jesus was all in for us and calls us to be all in for him. Here's the big idea for today, for this Sunday. When we are all in for Jesus, financial stewardship flows from a desire to honor God by being fruitful. It's not about guilt. It's not about compulsion. It's not about manipulation. It's not about keeping the law. It's out of a desire of a heart that wants to be fruitful because of the way that God supplies us. Last point. Disciples... Remember, disciples aren't experts. Disciples are those who are learning at the feet of Jesus. Disciples are connected, who are connected to the vine keep this in context. Two verses, verses 10 and 11, same chapter. Paul says, Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. The newer version of the NIV that we use here, the NIV Bible, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Notice what God longs to enlarge, your harvest of righteousness. The only thing that's described as a harvest here is the righteousness that begins to grow up in our lives. Not a self-righteousness, but God's righteousness in us. This word translated as harvest comes from the same root word in Greek as the fruitful theme that we've already developed. What God longs to do then is to enlarge your personal righteousness through doing his will and make you even more fruitful in the way that you honor God. He also wants to enrich your life for the purpose of increasing your generosity. He does not arbitrarily promise to make you rich if you tithe to a local church. The older version of the NIV that I read at the beginning of this talk says you will be made rich. It's an interesting change if you have a newer version of the NIV, New International Version of the Bible. The translators made a correction. And they said, you know, a better, a better interpretation of, or better um, rendering of those words is you will be enriched in every way rather than you will be rich. They realized that American ears today in our time were tempted by false teachers to take this out of context and claim by pulling this one little statement out of the Bible, God promises to make me rich. And I'm not going to name any of them, but there are false teachers out there who are telling you if you just give to their project, to their cause, to their ministry, God's going to make you rich. When you hear that, you need to run. Because that person is in violation of what Paul said earlier about not giving under compulsion. 
That means not manipulation and not all those kinds of things that are part of self-promotion. God may or may not choose to make you rich, but he will enrich our lives in a way that is in keeping with what he calls us to do in order that we bear the fruit that he longs to see in our lives that ultimately brings praise and honor to him. So the goal of the harvest is increased generosity, not the accumulation of wealth. This is what the false teachers don't want you to know and why we should run when we hear that kind of manipulative message. The Lord's goal is, though, to bless people who are committed to such fruitfulness that we are able to be generous on every occasion, leading to thanksgiving that goes toward God. There's a pastor in West Virginia, Jim Butcher, who puts it this way, a simple formula. I hope this will show up. I put it in the print notes that you have. Hopefully this will show up behind me here. Number one, generosity plus real life equals struggle. That's the difficulty that we all face and why we get uncomfortable when we talk about giving in church. Here's the second principle, though. Generosity plus real life needs plus God equals enough. And that's what God teaches us is when we trust him and we dare to do what he says, he leads us to this point of being satisfied with enough. And then he resupplies through a variety of different ways what we have so that we can do it all again and that we can participate in the process that leads to our fruitfulness and praise to his name. The same teacher notes that he wants us all to be generous, but we are afraid because we are often barely making it now. We presume that we're on our own in this. The factor that changes all of this is the God factor. When we add God to the equation, we get the sum of enough, and we end up in a place where God is meeting all of our needs. When we are all in for Jesus, financial stewardship flows from a desire to honor God by bearing fruit. Okay, question. What happens when we live this way? Chuck Swindoll tells a story of an American soldier at the end of World War II as Europe began to pick up the pieces. Most of the old countries were in ruins at that point. Perhaps the saddest sight of all was that of orphaned children staring in the streets at those war-torn cities. Early on one chilly morning, an American soldier was making his way back to his barracks in London, and as he turned the corner in his jeep, he spotted a young boy with his nose pressed to the window of a pastry shop. Inside, the cooks were kneading dough for a fresh batch of donuts. The hungry boy stared in silence, watching every move. The soldier pulled up his jeep to the curb, stopped, got out, and quietly walked over to where the little guy was standing, looking through that window. And through this this steamed-up window, he could see the mouth-watering donuts as they were being pulled from the oven, piping hot. He saw the boy as he was salivating, and he released a a slight groan as he watched the cook place them onto a a glass-enclosed counter. And At that moment, the soldier's heart went out to this nameless orphan as he stood beside him. He said, son, would you like some of those? The boy was startled. He hadn't even realized the soldier was there. He said, oh, yes, I would indeed, sir. So the American soldier stepped inside, bought a dozen, put them in a bag, and walked back to where the boy was standing in the foggy cold of that London morning. He smiled and he handed out the bag, and he simply said, here you are. And he turned to walk away, but as he did, he felt a tug on his coat. And he looked back and he heard this small boy ask quietly, Mister, are you God? 
Swindoll tells this story and then he closes with this. Friends, we are never more like God than when we give because our God gave his very best. When we are all in for Jesus, financial stewardship is not an obligation, but it flows from a desire to honor God by bearing fruit in everything we do. Let's pray. Father God, as we go out to celebrate today and tomorrow, we thank you for being the God who has provided us with all that we truly need and who continues to provide what we will yet need. Make us instruments of fruitfulness in your name that brings praise to you and that causes people to wonder if we were sent by you. In Jesus' name, amen.